You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here, and I'm very pleased that you could join me on a, what is, as I record this, a Thursday afternoon where I'm sending out this video from my home in Santa Barbara, California. And every week, to the best of my ability, I come here on Thursday afternoons at 12 noon Pacific time and have a live question and answer program. The way we have the format for this is I begin with a lead question, uh, something that comes in to me over a comment on YouTube, maybe something on social media or an email, and I answer that question first, and then we just go through and take the questions that come up on the side chat window. So I wanna begin with our lead question today. And if I could capsulize the question in just uh, six words, here it is, it's, does God want me to struggle? And this comes from a question from a reader or a viewer named Mark. Mark writes this, Dave, my son just asked me a question and I am pretty stumped. Maybe you might have an answer. His question is this, when we become Christians, why does God not remove our sinful nature so that we can serve him and glorify him completely here on the earth? Thank you for your thoughts on this. Well, Mark, let me say just simply, God bless you and God bless your son. I'm glad your son is asking thoughtful questions like that, because that really is a good and a thoughtful question to ask. Well, why doesn't God just remove our sinful nature so that we could just have all the glory and all the glorifying of him possible right here, right now on the earth? And it's a great question. I mean, why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God um, some people ask, why doesn't God just take us to heaven right away as soon as an individual puts their faith in Jesus Christ and as soon as they are converted by God's Spirit? Why doesn't God just take them to heaven? Why doesn't God perhaps leave us on this earth yet complete this work of salvation in us? You know, the Bible talks about salvation in the sense that we are saved. It talks about salvation in the sense in which we are being saved. That's the present tense, or, or rather have been saved, are being saved. And then finally, the Bible talks about our salvation in the sense that we will be saved. Why is there this kind of um, connection where there is a past, present, and yet a future to our salvation that we don't fully possess at the moment? We're not glorified yet we don't have our resurrection bodies yet. Well, I would just simply put it like this, Mark and anybody else who is interested in this question. I would simply say, God has a purpose for my present struggles. Does God want me to struggle? Well, in a sense, yes, because God has a purpose for my present struggles. Now, we understand completely that there are some struggles, excuse me, I'm going to take a drink of water here. <clears throat> there are some struggles that God wants to deliver me from. In other words, uh, I'm in a struggle and God just wants to take it away from me. Let, let, let's put it to you this way. Um, maybe I have a financial need and God's solution to that financial need is to bring me a bunch of money to meet that financial need. Maybe I'm sick and God's solution to my struggle with that illness is he wants to heal me right here and right now. So there are some struggles that God wants to deliver us from. But there are some struggles that God wants me to endure through. So to, to put it in other ways, um, I'm in a struggle financially. And what God's answer to my prayer for help in the midst of that is God shows me how to manage the money I have much better. And I can make it through the financial difficulty without having any more money come in. I'm enduring through the difficulty. The same thing could be said regarding our physical health or conflict with other people or whatever it might be. So you see, there are some struggles that God wants to deliver us from, 
And there are other struggles that God wants to deliver us or to make us endure through. So we need real wisdom from God in each one of those struggles. But this is what I'm trying to point out. The presence of the struggle doesn't mean that something is wrong with us individually, not necessarily. It means that there's something wrong in the broader world. It means that we live in a fallen world. And there is a very real sense in which we are all sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. Those things are true. But there are struggles and difficulties that come to our life that are not necessarily because of any sin or compromise on our part as individuals. What I'm trying to get at is this. The idea of a Christian life that is continuous victory with never a real struggle along the way, that's not a Bible idea. I believe that God can give us victory. Amen for that. But but sometimes it's going to be victory with great struggle. We are not spiritual supermen where the bullets just bounce off our chest. You know that figure from Superman in the comic books or in the movies. You know, you shoot a gun at Superman, it doesn't even bother him. The bullet just bounces off his chest. Some people think that that's the ideal Christian life that God has for us right now. Where nothing, if we're really walking in the spirit or whatever, nothing can really touch us. That's not true. You can be having profound struggle and be in God's will. Remember what Jesus said. John chapter 16, verse 33. This is what Jesus said. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that powerful? Jesus' testimony is very plain. In the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to. But be of good cheer because Jesus Christ is greater than any struggle or difficulty that the world might throw at us. I like another verse from the New Testament. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. And Paul wrote the Thessalonians and told them this. And, and he could say this to any Christian. The Holy Spirit says this to us today. He says, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. There is some sense in which God has an appointment to affliction for us. It doesn't have to be an appointment to defeat, but it just means there's going to be affliction, a struggle, and hopefully the victory of God in the midst of it. Now, it is true that God has a time when the struggles are going to be over, the battles are going to be finished, and we will not have a sinful nature to deal with anymore. But I'm here to tell you, that time is not now on this earth. That time is in heaven. Here, God has a work to do in us right now. And in God's wisdom, God understands that the work he wants to do in us is best served. It is best promoted by allowing the presence of sin and affliction and struggle in our lives at the present moment, leading to the day when all things will be new. You see, Mark, the day that your son spoke about the day will be glorified, the day there'll be no more struggle, the day the sin will be just in the past, the day we won't have to battle with a sinful nature, all of those things, God promises the believer that day is coming. It's just not right now. And God has a purpose for the struggle in our life. The purpose is to lead us into victory in Jesus Christ, either victory from the struggle or victory in the struggle. So, Christian, I want you to understand this. You can be struggling right now and still be right in the center of God's will for your life. If you're in the midst of trial, if you're in the midst of significant difficulty, don't think that that means that you're automatically blowing it or out of God's will. It, it means that God has allowed a struggle to come before you he wants to use it for his glory 
and for the triumph of Jesus Christ in your life. Look to Jesus and have him do that in your life today. Okay, that's it for our lead question. Let's go through now and take a look at our side chat and some of the questions that have come in. Hello, Sherry. Nice to hear from you. Tyler says this. What do you think about this practice of learning to hear God's voice speak to your spirit by journaling whatever thoughts pop into your head after asking him a question? Okay, Tyler. Um, I haven't heard of this specific practice that you're mentioning right here uh, until I just read your question right here, right now. So I'm going to read it one more time. What do you think about the practice of learning to hear God's voice speak to your spirit by journaling whatever thoughts pop into your head after asking him a question? Okay, Tyler, I, I would just like to say, I do not think that that's a good idea. I don't think that we learn how to hear God's voice by writing down whatever pops into our head after we ask God a question. I mean, really, I'm kind of surprised that people would go down this road. That, that, that's not a way to learn God's word, God's will. Um, if you want to hear God's voice, read your Bible. Now, I say that as a person who believes that God does speak to people today, but it is never and can never be on the same level of what he says in his word. I don't think we should seek to have God supernaturally speak to us apart from his word. Seek God's voice by reading his word. If God speaks to you in some way other than that, then judge it by his word and by the discernment of trusted, more mature Christians in your life. But never put it on the level of God's word here and now. So, no, I, I, think, that, I think that it's dangerous to be too casual about this idea of God speaking to us. Look, I've met people like this. Oh, well, God said this to me then, and God said this to me the other day, and God was speaking to me the other day, and God said this. And it's like, and what I think they're doing is I think perhaps sincerely so, but they're confusing their own thoughts for God speaking to them. Brothers and sisters, can't we just agree that it is a dangerous thing to confuse your thoughts with God's voice? Right away, we can tell there's a lot of danger in that. So if you want to hear God speak to you, seek him in his word. If God were to speak to you in some other way, you got to judge it by his word and by the judgment of other believers who are more mature than you, trusted believers. So yeah, Tyler, the, the, the practice you're speaking of, I don't think is healthy. I don't think it's it's good. It causes people to be too casual and too confident. Let me tell you, I'll just add one more thing. I, I don't want to go on and on about this, but one more thing. I am disturbed when I hear Christians far too casually speak about the Lord speaking to them, and they act or speak as if they have absolute certainty about what God speaks. Um, I am much more impressed by people who say, you know, I think God might have been speaking to me in this. Um, they, they qualify it. And they realize that they might be wrong, and they're looking for God to confirm. I'll say it again. This is the word that we have final confidence in. E even though God may speak to an individual, he'll never do it against his word, and he'll never do it against the judgment of mature believers that he'll place around. That's why Paul says that we should judge what God says. Um, and, and judge it according to the scriptures. All right, Tyler, I hope that helpful there. Um, Sherry says, I believe struggle is for growing stronger in God. Does God want us to suffer? No. Well, 
Jerry, I will say this. A struggle may feel like suffering. I don't know where the line of suffering ends and struggle begins, but somewhere there, there's challenge, there's adversity that God divinely uses in our life to strengthen us in our life and walk in the Lord. Um, Tyler says, again, I got that idea of speaking. Tyler says, some people say this is a new age practice and dangerous because it may may not be hearing from God, but from the flesh or Satan by doing this. Well, yeah, exactly so. Exactly so, Tyler. Okay, a Christian writes and says, Hi, Pastor David. Is Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, one of the reasons why we see less demonic possession now than during Jesus's earthly ministry? Um, Colossians chapter 2, I think I know the verse you're speaking about there, Christian, but let me just find it and read it to you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, speaks of the work of Jesus on the cross and says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross, in Jesus' work of the cross. And what a Christian is just pointing to is how Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that demonic powers were defeated at the cross. Now, Christian, I think that that's one reason why we see less demonic possession and demonic overt activity in the Western world than we seem to see in the ministry of Jesus. Although there's a few things to say about that. Number one, let's realize this, is that um, we in the Western world live with the legacy of some 2,000 years of Christian influence in society. That is a huge legacy. Now, what's really sad about our present culture, our present day, is we seem to be doing the best we can. The, the culture at large in the Western world is running as fast as it can to abandon that Christian heritage, that Christian influence that has been put into the Western world for the last 2,000 years. Let me tell you something that will not end well. There are uncountable blessings that have come to the Western world because of the influence of 2,000 years of Christianity. So we can't turn our backs on that and be blessed It'll bring many bad things, many bad things, I believe, that we begin to see right now. So that's one. There's there's 2,000 years of influence of Christianity in the Western world. That's one aspect. Another aspect of why we see less demonic activity in the Western world is, I believe, that in some regard, it fits with Satan's strategy in the Western world. Now, I say the Western world because you go to other parts in the world, sometimes places that are called developing nations, whatever you want to call them. And those places that don't have the same kind of centuries of Christian influence that we have, there is often said to be much more overt or obvious demonic activity. Again, that's because of the lack of Christian influence, but it's also because of this. In the Western world, I think that Satan and his agents have made a calculated strategic approach that they would rather be under the radar instead of being so obvious. Sometimes Satan operates in a very obvious, in your face, I'm the devil, I want you to be afraid of me and serve me kind of way. There's other times when Satan very much wants to operate by uh, going under the radar, so to speak below detection, and not making himself obvious. And I think that Satan understands that his strategy of being less obvious in the Western world is working very well. And that's one of the reasons for that approach. So yes, I would give those three reasons. First of all, the uh, disarming of principalities and powers, the 2,000 years of Christian influence, and the strategy of Satan right now. It doesn't mean that Satan is not 
busily working in the Western world right now. You better believe he is. He's busily working in the broader world and he's busily working in individual lives of both believers and unbelievers. But his general strategy is to be below the obvious, to be below detection. All right, let me go on to another question here. Uh, Brittany says, how do you respond to someone who wants evidence of God without referring to the Bible? Well, Brittany, uh, there's many ways I could answer that question, but let me just say, first and foremost, I would say that the Bible tells us that apart from the Bible, apart from God's written revelation, Romans chapter 1 explains that God has spoken to every human being through creation and through conscience. And so we see evidence of God in creation and evidence of God in conscience, even apart from the Bible. So I, I guess that would be the simple answer to your question, Brittany. I, I would point people towards creation and conscience for evidence of God um, without referring to the Bible. Now, just because they don't want you to refer to the Bible doesn't mean that you have to not refer to the Bible. Did you know that you can refer to the Bible and talk about the Bible without specifically quoting chapter and verse? So in other words, I can tell somebody, you know, God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son that if anybody puts their trust in him, that they won't be condemned, but they'll find eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, I can say that paraphrasing the wonderful message of John 3.16 without saying John 3.16 says. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying John 3.16 says, and many times it's helpful to do that so people know you're referring to the Bible. But if somebody is just very biased or prejudiced against the Bible, uh, then you can quote scripture to them without telling them that you're quoting scripture. One of the reasons why we need to be very familiar with the word of God and know it and meditate upon it. Okay, let me continue on. Carmel asked the question, um, Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, an angel of God is given incense to offer with prayers. Are the prayers of the saints on the altar now, or does that happen in the future? Carmel, I would say that this is drawing on a picture that is used many places in the Bible. So I would say, when you ask me, does Revelation 8.3 refer to prayers made now or prayers made in the future, my answer to that question would be yes. I think it encompasses both. This idea of incense being a picture of prayer is, number one, um, incense rises, the smoke from incense rises up towards the heavens. Secondly, it it is, or incense is good. I've smelled some stinky incense in my days, but um, incense can smell very pleasant. And our incense, if it will, drifts up to heaven and is heard by God, and it's pleasing to him. Those are some of the associations with incense and prayer. So if that was the only place in the Bible that indicated a connection between incense and prayer, we might say that it only refers to something in the future. But since this is a frequent image used of prayer in the Bible, we can say that it refers to much more. Thank you for that question there, Christian. Here's a question from Jane asking, David, two questions. Okay, two questions from Jane. Number one, you said in your Genesis commentary that Eve thought her baby was the Messiah. Why? Also, how do we send you questions offline? I guess that's your second question. Okay, Jane, questions offline, you can leave them as comments on the YouTube videos, as a comment to this video. So when this video gets posted or some other video, uh, we take a look at those comments. And of course, we don't respond to each and every comment, but we read them, especially trying to take note if there are questions that come up. Also, if you go to my website, EnduringWord.com, if you search around, you know, especially in the About menu, you can find an email address where I and the ministry here can be reached. Okay, that's your second question. Jane, you're asking, uh, why do I think that Eve thought her baby was the Messiah? Okay, well, there's basically two reasons. And look, I, I can't say that I'm 100% certain of this, 
But I can say that I feel like I'm pretty certain of this, and I'll explain why. I believe that this is something that is pretty certain for these reasons. Number one, remember the promise that God made to Eve and to Adam. He said to Eve that your seed, your descendant, would crush the serpent's head, would be the Messiah, the one to conquer Satan, your descendant. Cain was the first descendant of Eve. It would be totally logical for her to say, God said I would have a descendant. God said that descendant would crush Satan's head, would defeat Satan, would be the Messiah. I have a descendant. This must be the guy. And the name Cain, there's some indication as I give in the commentary, and I'm just doing this from memory, so you, you could look there for the exact wording. But there's something to the name Cain that suggests that the meaning of the name is, this is the one. So the name connected to the promise makes us think, oh, Eve probably thought that this was the one God promised, the descendant who would crush the serpent's head, who would be uh, the Messiah. So I, I hope that explains that there for you, Jane. Okay, um, Brittany says, uh, let's see, is free will really free if God is sovereign over all things? And lastly, how can one grow in walking with God? Okay, let me ask you a second question first, Brittany. How can one grow? I think that there are the major ways that we grow are by giving attention to the Christian basics. What are the Christian basics? Prayer, reading our Bibles, worship and fellowship with other believers, and serving God in some way, especially telling other people about Jesus. These are basic ways that we serve God. Go to my website, EnduringWord.com, look under the media section in the topical messages, and you'll find a series of messages called Rooted. And I think it's four messages where in those messages, I try to deal with these basics of the Christian life. Really, that's how we grow. That people are looking for more spectacular things, but really Christian growth is a matter of consistently, daily, over the long term, giving attention to the basics of the Christian life. Now, you ask, um, is free will really free if God is sovereign over all things? And the question is that was, yes, kind of. Brittany, I, I, I just want you to know, I don't use the phrase free will very often. I suppose sometimes it might slip out of my mouth, but I don't use the phrase free will very often. I more refer to a real choice. Okay, and this is what I mean. Um, you can make the argument, and the argument can be made, that our will is not truly free that our will, our decision-making ability is under all kind of influences, and especially, that's true, of the person who has not been born again. So I, I don't know how free our will is. It's under all kinds of influence. But this is what I do know, that God has given to humanity real choice. If we as human beings do not have the capability to make real choices, then we're just robots. We're programmed. No, God is sovereign. He has a plan and a purpose that he's working out throughout all the ages in all the universe. We don't doubt that for a moment. And God has arranged without somehow the real choices of men and women on earth uh, mesh together perfectly with his plan. How that happens, I can't exactly say, but we know that it does happen. But here's what I would encourage you. Think in terms of real choice more than free will. Okay, uh, 
broken people says, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, asks, how are tongues a sign for unbelievers? Well, that's a very interesting question there, broken people, because the answer that Paul gives connects back to judgment that God was bringing upon the Israelites. Uh, Paul is quoting uh, from the Old Testament here, uh, Isaiah chapter 45, I believe it is, where it says, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. When God originally gave that prophecy in Isaiah, it was a prophecy of judgment upon Israel. What he was speaking of how God was going to bring judgment upon Israel from people who spoke another language than Hebrew. They spoke the language of the Assyrians. They spoke the language of the Babylonians, Chaldean language. Now, how does that connect with the gift of tongues? Well, there is some aspect of the gift of tongues that is a judgment to those who do not believe. It is some evidence of supernatural power in their midst that evidences that the power of God, the presence of God is there in their midst, and they are rejecting it. They're not believing it. This is what I think is important to point out. I have a significant disagreement with my cessationist brothers and sisters. Uh, cessationist means they don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit, such as the gift of tongues, are for today, that those ended with the first century church, with the apostles. My cessationist brothers and sisters usually teach this to mean that that is the only purpose for the gift of tongues, that the only purpose was to be judgment to Israel. Again, you cannot deny that it is a purpose that God has for the gift of tongues. Paul says so clearly right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But from what else that Paul says about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and especially earlier in chapter 14, I don't think you can say for a moment that it is the only purpose. This is a problem of failing to rightly divide the word of truth, where we take one aspect of scriptural truth and we think that that's the only thing that the Bible says about it. So when you're talking about why God has given the gift of tongues and what the purpose is for the gift of tongues, don't ignore the aspect of it being for judgment, but don't think that that's the only reason God gave the gift of tongues. So I hope that helps you there, broken people. Sherry says, uh, the virus is from a demonic play from the devil. That's why no one can figure it out. We are in the end times. Well, amen, Sherry, I believe that it's healthy for every believer to live with the mentality that we are in the end times. And we see the stage set for the end better now than I think we ever have before. Okay, West says, hello, love your teaching. My first time on here. Wanted to ask you, what is the purpose of the speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, verse 38? Thank you in advance. Okay, well, another question regarding tongues. West, let me tell you what the purpose of tongues in Acts chapter 2 was not. Okay, ready? It was not to preach to the crowd. Many people assume that, and I understand why people assume it. Because when the crowd heard those Christians on the day of Pentecost speaking in these tongues, and they recognized some of the languages that they were speaking, they said, we hear them declaring the great things of God. Now, I do not believe that they were preaching the gospel. And I believe that for two reasons. Number one, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul tells us 
that when a person speaks in an unknown tongue by the gift of God, they are not speaking to man, but to God. God is the audience of speaking in tongues, not man. There are many people who misunderstand the gift of tongues and think that it is like a divine pocket translator, uh, that it's the ability to do missionary work in other languages, even when we don't know language. That is not. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks unto God and not unto man. What was happening on the day of Pentecost was this. The disciples, in their exuberance of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of being baptized with the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, were speaking in their unknown tongues, and they were speaking loudly, exuberantly. They were speaking unto God, but it could be heard by the nearby crowd. When it came time to preach the gospel to that crowd, Peter stood up, calmed everybody down from their speaking in tongues, and he spoke to the crowd in a language that they all knew, Koine Greek. That's what's going on there. So it's really very simple. Um, that's what happened at the day of Pentecost. The purpose of it was consistent with the larger purpose of the gift of tongues. Now, I mentioned before in the answer I gave to broken people that one aspect, one purpose for the gift of tongues is to be assigned to unbelievers, but I think there's a larger purpose. The larger purpose for the gift of tongues is to be a tool of communication that transcends our intellect our human knowledge. Um, again, if you're interested in this, go carefully through my commentary or my teaching at EnduringWord.com through 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. And I think I exhaustively explain this pretty well. Uh, so really, that, that's the point. It's to communicate with God on a level that transcends our human understanding. Okay, um... Yes, Sherry, our pain and suffering is not always about us, but for helping others. That's very true. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are comforted so that we may comfort others in their time of affliction. Okay, you see the pencil I have here. Kristana uh, says, what are your thoughts on the new lockdown orders in California? Should churches refuse to obey them? Kristana, I would just simply say this. I believe that this is a matter for each individual pastor to bring before God and with that pastor and the leaders of the church for them to come to an understanding of what God's will is for them. And when they have a sense of what God's will is, they should boldly pursue it. I, I do think this that we should not operate the church simply on the basis of what the government says we can and cannot do. Um, we should try to be wise. We should care for the welfare of our people and our community. But the church does not fundamentally exist or operate at the permission of the government. And that's not because of what the United States Constitution might say. That's because the church is an institution that belongs to Jesus Christ. And the church does not belong to the state or the government. And so we should do what is honoring to God, what is faithful to God, what is honoring and um, respectful of our local authorities, even if we do not obey what they tell us to do, we should disobey respectfully. Um, but fundamentally, the church is God's institution. It's not my institution. It's not, you know, the Christian's institution. It's Jesus's institution. And uh, we just need to remember that. Now, 
I believe that God will give wisdom to each individual pastor uh, and leadership team at a church if they will seek him. And I won't judge another brother for doing something different than what I might do. I say, listen, that's between you and the Lord. Just do what God gives you to do boldly, whatever it is that he gives you to do. Um, Okay, next question. Jose says, and the apostles, whoops, I'm sorry, I lost Jose's question there. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Luke chapter 17, verse 5. How can we grow more and more in faith? Do we just ask? Else what do we have to do? Read the word, Romans 10, 17, your thoughts, please. Okay, well, Jose, that's exactly where I was going to lead you, was to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. One way that we get more faith is by reading, understanding, meditating upon God's word. So that is a very important source of faith. There's another source of faith, though, too. And I don't think it's another in the sense of being different. It's alongside of reading the word. It's doing the word. It's living out our Christian lives. You can think of it like this. Faith is like a muscle. And how does a muscle grow? A muscle grows by the right nourishment. That's like the word of God. And by exercise. That's by doing the word. So we need nourishment and we need exercise. That's how faith is built. In that sense, we can say that faith is like a muscle. Some people want to exercise without nutrition, and other people want to get the nutrition without the exercise. No, we want to be hearers or learners of the word, and we want to be doers of the word. Okay, hope that helps you there, Jose. Christopher says, David, struggling is a huge variable that God allows, uses, in some cases causes to afflict believers. Yes, Christopher, I would agree with you on that. Um. I think that's that's quite true there. And then uh, Lisa Marie says, our hearts are deceitful. I wouldn't trust my thoughts at all. Trust the Bible. That's the only way we can trust 100%. Um, Lisa Marie, that's true. And I agree with the spirit of what you say there. Although we need to understand that as we are in the word, the Bible says, that there will be a renewing of our mind. Do you remember that phrase from Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As we are more and more in God's word, reading, thinking, meditating, learning, our mind will be transformed and we'll never be completely trustworthy, not until we're glorified, but it should become more and more trustworthy because we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That, that, that's how I would express there, Lisa Marie. But again, I, I understand your sentiment, your thought right there. Um, AR says, what should be the exact repentance for adultery? Well, AR, I, I'm going to, say here, I don't have a answer to that question that is exact in every circumstance. I mean, in a sense, this is a pastoral question that would need to be answered with a wise pastor or someone who has a true shepherd's knowledge and heart before God, and to go and with true knowledge of the situation and biblical wisdom can apply biblical wisdom to that. In general, we would say that it would mean completely cutting off the adulterous relationship, completely. And then it would also mean um, doing whatever one can to rebuild a relationship of love and trust with the spouse who has been sinned against, realizing that that's going to take a long time to rebuild and to restore. Uh, And then there may be many other aspects 
that are peculiar to the specific situation, but there would be confession before God, confession in some sense between man, but that, you know, that's going to differ in each situation to the extent of that. Uh, there would be a true breaking off of the relationship and there would be genuine effort towards the restoration of love and trust and being in that for the long haul, the long struggle. And again, there may be other aspects that are peculiar to the situations. Okay, uh, going on. Uh, Brittany B., you need um, to ask God for wisdom concerning uh, divine determinants for free will. Yes, Brittany B., you're very welcome. Um, Jane says... <laughs> Pastor David, you said last week that God can get our attention with events like long droughts. Do you think he could be trying to get our attention now with COVID-19? COVID-19. Um, Jane, I can answer that very simply. Yes. Whenever there is turmoil and disruption in the world, we can believe God is trying to get our attention. So, Yes, a very simple answer to that. Um, thank you, Jane. Happy that you listen. Um, Margaret from Scotland. Hey, God bless you. Hello, Margaret. Wonderful to know that we have uh, Scottish folk um, tuning in. Uh, I've loved the time that I've spent in Scotland and love some of the great cities there of that country and the countryside as well, of course. Um, Gunnell. Hello, Gunnell. Nice to see you. That's my mother-in-law, Gunnel Bergstrom. Blessings to you. Hope all is well. Um, Christopher, uh, consider for years I've been, okay, consider says this. For years I have been struggling to speak in tongues. Why the delay? I am afraid I am truly, uh, maybe you're afraid I'm not truly born again. Consider, let me say this. Don't struggle to speak or to pray in tongues. Don't struggle with it. It's a gift of God. Um, the way Paul presents the gift, especially as he speaks, do all speak in tongues? The answer to that question is no. Th this isn't a gift that every believer has. So don't struggle for it. And don't look at the gift of tongues as being a prize or what we might call a merit badge for being such a good Christian. That's not what it is. That's not how it works. There's been a lot of damage done in the Christian world by thinking of it in those terms. So no, um, instead, just simply um, uh, be thankful and say, God, if you ever want to give it to me, I'm open to receive it. And, uh, and then just go on from there. You don't need to struggle to speak it. Um, again, if you want it, Ask God, and if he gives it to you, you, you can uh, simply exercise that gift. There's more that I could say, uh, but I'll just leave that. If you want more, go to the teachings on my website. I don't know if we have these teachings. Uh, there may be some teaching by me on the Gift of Tongues on the YouTube channel, but certainly on my website, EnduringWord.com, much, much more information about it there. Uh, Lauren says, hello, Pastor David. Thank you for your teachings. What is your practical advice about entering into ministry for someone who feels called to ministry? Lauren, I, I would say a few things to someone who came to me and said that they were interested in that. Uh, first of all, and, and this is a very important principle, um, just find a place to be faithful right where you're at. There are people who have great ambitions for ministry. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. You know, I want to be a pastor and preach every Sunday. And you know what? Look, maybe God has that for an individual. But why don't you start off just by being faithful in a Sunday school class? So finding any kind of ministry to just be faithful in God has so much to teach us and to build in us through simply that. The other thing is take care that you don't appoint yourself to ministry. Now, it is true that 
perhaps not everybody will see a calling that God has given us. We'll kind of be doing it all on our own. We just think like, well, yeah. But um, it would be very unusual if nobody saw a calling that's within you. Um, usually, God's normal practice is to give confirmation to a calling through the observations and the contributions of other people. So th that's the main thing. Just find a way to serve God right now where you're at. Try different things and just look for where God's blessing is. Look for where the joy is and the effectiveness is in serving the Lord and go forward in that. So thank you for that, Lauren. All right. Uh, my voice is getting kind of tired. So I think I'm going to maybe just take one more question. Um, I have a friend, this is from Sono, who is struggling with the restrictions on daily life. He keeps making comments such as, life seems pointless now that everything has changed. What advice would you give him? Sono, I'll simply say this. You know, we could wish that God had appointed us to a more comfortable season right now, but he just hasn't. And as bold and strong men and women in Jesus Christ, we need to rise up and fulfill the responsibility that God has placed in front of us right here, right now. And we can take comfort that as difficult as this time is for some, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world right now and in generations past have faced much worse and God has sustained them. We can learn the valuable lessons of endurance right here, right now, and just simply say, God, you can be real. You can um, show your power and your goodness right now in this present season. All right, that's going to be it for today. Uh, the questions I didn't get to, I'm sorry. I will copy them and save them and hope to get to them in a future uh, question and answer time uh, when I won't be able to do it live. But I expect to be back with you next Thursday live. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you for your prayers and your support of the work that we do uh, at Enduring Word. It is a tremendous blessing. I am so, so grateful for it. And uh, thanks to my dear brothers and sisters uh, serving the Lord, especially, I think, of my dear brothers in our broader Calvary Chapel family, the pastors I know who are serving God in this very difficult season. I'm so grateful for this family that we have of Calvary Chapel pastors and other servants of God. And uh, I just want to speak a word of blessing and encouragement to you and uh, whoever you are in whatever way you're serving the Lord. Now's not the time to be weary, but to press on in our service of God. So thank you for joining me today. I'll be back with you, God willing, and if we live next Thursday. And thanks for your prayers and your uh, participation in this. God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.